Great, thanks, Peter. And good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're uh, brand new, welcome to our church. Glad to have you guys joining. Uh, we are in a series, a sermon series right now in the Gospel of John, and uh, we are going to preach the whole book. And so we've been in it several months. We'll be in it for another year or so. Uh, we are not going to preach a, a Palm Sunday-specific sermon today, though happy Palm Sunday and happy Holy Week. Uh, we will have a Good Friday service this week, as you just heard Ellen talk about, and then we'll pause uh, on Easter for uh, a little bit more Easter-specific text uh, before coming back to John. Um, but today is uh, kind of an exciting day, I think, at least for me, on uh, the book of John. One of my favorite parts of this book is the end, kind of middle end of chapter 6. It's the, uh, we're going to have three parts of this. So today is part one of the Bread of Life uh, discourse. So if, you, if you've not read this, and that's even just that title's kind of over your head, just hang tight, we'll catch you up. But if you know uh, kind of what I'm talking about, maybe you know uh, why it's so significant and fresh and uh, indifferent, there's some things Jesus says here that are uh, quite striking. Uh, very good news, also a bit offensive. Uh, in fact, one of the, this is one of the places in the gospel accounts that uh, sends a lot of people away. We're not going to see the fallout of uh, what happens here until week three of three. This is, again, this is part one of three, but uh, just have a sense for that, that it's coming, that Jesus says some things about himself and about the gospel that just makes people say, I'm done, I'm out, that's just too weird, that's too, just too much, I can't handle this. Uh, and so there's, uh, that's, that is um, a part to our, uh, you know, our journeys maybe or our uh, being confronted by Jesus that we all go through, whether we're Christian or not, uh, that Jesus says things that are just different than teachers do or sages or uh, wise people, um, rabbis, different things like that. But he is more than that. He's the son of God. And so the way he sort of uh, crafts this uh, really keeps in step with that. And you'll see as we go. A um, little bit of context, though. Jesus has just got done feeding the 5,000 people, um, multiplying a few crumbs of bread and a couple of fish, and uh, did that, if you're familiar with that story. Then he walked on water after that, saved his friends from a storm. Uh, these are a couple of the signs that John calls them, the, the signs of Jesus. There are seven big ones that come before the kind of the Passion Week proper, the second half of John. That was the fourth and fifth sign, so we have two more signs coming. Um, but there are seven signs to kind of indicate that Jesus is here to recreate the world. There's a new seven-day creation motif happening here, uh, kind of by way of Jesus' main miracles. And so we're seeing that that's uh, kind of play into the context here too, all right? Uh, more to say, but why don't I just kind of read the passage here to begin. Today, is the que this question that Jesus has asked is, what is the work of God? Uh, we'll spend a lot of time in that, but there's uh, a few things going on. But let's just read this in full here uh, to start. Verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that the disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, so... Uh, a couple uh, things by way of recap here, and I kind of mentioned this, but essentially the way the passage begins, uh, what happens is the crowds, after the feeding of the 5,000 miracle occurs, and their stomachs are full, their minds are blown by what they just saw, they want more of Jesus, but he's not there. So they all end up traveling north in these boats uh, to Capernaum, which is like the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, which is where they knew that his disciples were going, thinking that maybe Jesus ended up rendezvousing with them there, and in fact, uh, he did, or they didn't know he walked across the water. They didn't have a category for that, but he is there, and so they find him there. But then the big discourse uh, begins, and again, like I, I said, this, I think this is one of the more significant parts of John's gospel. It's something we don't see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. Uh, they, we see a version of it, sort of, but it's more just the miracle of the bread multiplication. Uh, but this is the way that John unpacks sort of the the lesson of the miracle, and I'll talk about that, is very unique and very rich. Um, and the theology of it is kind of drawn out through a back-and-forth Q&A session, essentially, with these people, the crowds, and Jesus. And so what, what I want to do today is going to walk us through the main three exchanges to help us see the point, uh, which actually Jesus does get really explicit with. He's not hiding, from, maybe you saw this, but he's not hiding from them or from us and how he talks to them. And, and yet, as we see here, too, at the end, people still disbelieve. And that's another part of this kind of ongoing drama and the way that Jesus is beginning to reveal himself to the world. This is one of the things that happen is people see but don't perceive. And uh, so we'll touch on this later, but just this idea of the impossibility of belief, the impossibility of faith, and how Jesus uh, serves as, uh, he speaks to the remedy, the, the fix to that, and uh, gives us a lot of grace in light of it. But that's a big part at the end of this passage, part one, but we'll see that kind of spill over to you in the next couple of weeks, all right? So with that uh, bearings sort of given, let's uh, ju jump into the beginning. So I have three parts, the beginning, the middle, and the end, basically. That's the best way to go through this, just kind of go through it again and kind of recap it, rephrase it a bit for clarity and talk about how the theology is derived by the way these people's questions and especially Jesus' answers. So uh, the beginning, this is my, sort of my paraphrase here, but basically what happens is Jesus says, you're not really seeking me, you just want more bread. But I'm saying to you, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. That's a, an idiom, a theological name uh, from the Old Testament for Jesus. So he's saying, which, which I will give you. Then the crowds respond to that by saying, well, what must we do then to be doing the works of God for, for this bread? And then the theology of this passage, at least to, to start here, uh, comes rushing in like a, an unsuspecting tidal wave. Uh, verse 29 says, and Jesus flat out answers him. He says, this is the work of God. This is the answer to your question. This is the work of God that you believe in him 
whom he has sent. So again, speaking about himself. This is the work God requires. This is the work of God now in this new era is trust, it's faith, it's belief. To believe in the one, and not just a broad, kind of a broad generic understanding of believing in God, uh, but believing in the one he's sent, believing in the Son of Man or Jesus Christ. All right? So on one level, though, just to back up here briefly, on one level, this question makes sense. And Jesus isn't like rebuking them for the question, not giving them a hard time for asking it. Um, They're saying, we want this super bread you speak of. Most people here were the ones that just saw the the multiplying of the fish and loaves, and they're there with full stomachs, and they want more of that. And then they hear about a better bread that doesn't perish. And so the question makes sense. Like, what, what do we have to do to be doing the works of God in order to acquire this bread that endures to eternal life and never perishes. And these are also, uh, keep in mind, these are also Jews who have spent their whole life underneath the 613 laws of the Old Testament. Their minds were programmed to work for God and to think of salvation itself in in a bit more of a works-reward-based manner. If we work, then we get. Uh, The law itself said, if you do these things, then you will live. Uh, and we're really no different. That, that is our, um, our default uh, way of thinking. Uh, Romans 2 talks about this, how even Gentiles that did not have the law kind of had a law in their own hearts. They had this way of thinking that was based on their moral effort and their ability to keep up and to climb. Uh, but Jesus confronts it, and he does so here. We'll, we'll uh, see this throughout the next three weeks too. But he does so in an interesting way by answering this question. And, he, and he, this is, So the background there is what makes Jesus' answer so disarming. And so rich because he doesn't meet them on that level, like their level, in terms of how they were thinking about work. Uh, John's gospel here is continuing to help us understand that the question, what must I do, is the wrong question to ask in light of the grace that Jesus is inaugurating through his earthly ministry. Uh, Especially here, in light of the shadow of the feeding of the 5,000 miracle in which everything was given and nothing was worked for. In fact, in one sense, Jesus' answer here is the work of God is to do nothing uh, except to trust in the one who works for you. If, if um, this passage is meant to be a bookend to the first bookend of the feeding of the 5,000, remember what Jesus did there. He had them sit down and receive, um, sort of contra what they did in the Old Testament when they had to work for the manna. This was a different time. Jesus had them sit and receive the miracle that Jesus worked out and, and worked for on their, on their behalf. And so, so in one sense then, that's kind of a way to, it's a paraphrase, but in one sense, Jesus is there, would have been really received and heard in that light, that the work of God is to believe, to trust in someone else. It's, it's to do, not to do so much. It's a type of work, but not a work that we understand uh, work to be as much. We don't define it in those terms as much uh, in, in our day-to-day vernacular. So trust in the one who works for you. In fact, if you try to work for the bread that endures uh, to eternal life, it spoils. It kind of rots in your hands. Uh, it, it won't, it, it won't uh, last. It, it, can't, it can't be held with uh, calloused hands. We need to have open hands and receive what Christ has to give us. Now, the question there from there, of course, and there's a lot of questions that might come to your mind um, in light of that, but this, I mean, to just address a few, this is not saying that the Christian life is like idle, uh, or that there aren't other things to be doing with our time, or that this is some excuse to sin, or anything like that. Uh, it says, though, that if you, are, if you are to 
think about work, it's to think about it in a singular way. The work that God requires is passive, it's grace-filled, it's not really about us at all. It says if you are to put time and energy into something, put it into belief, into more, more belief. Put it into decreasing, that he might increase. Put it into uh, this um, very uh, abstract, but uh, a phrase that we should have vested interest in knowing what it means in the New Testament, of being strong in grace. Somehow becoming stronger in the fact that God saves us, not our works. Somehow becoming more mature in that idea and letting that infuse everything we say and do and, and think. Uh, Tom Holland uh, writes in his book, Dominion, uh, about the early Christians and how they confounded the Roman Empire and their insistence that they were citizens of nothing but belief. This is just a quick excerpt, but he, he says, Never before had there been anything quite like it. Uh, speaking of Christianity, a citizenship that was owed not to birth, nor to descent, nor to legal prescriptions, but to belief alone. Uh, basically he's saying it, it's what set the early Christians apart, and to this day, it's what sets us apart from, from the world and other religions. Is uh, we, uh, this, this kind of our love for each other, but our insistence that it's only faith that matters. Uh, it, it's our deference to God's grace rather than our outspoken morality, our, our deferring to what God does for us, not our, what we do for God, but our deferring to grace and how he comes our way, comes down, as he, as he says in this passage, rather than our ascension uh, through what we, what we perform. So now, there are about a thousand implications for this that we could talk about today. Uh, we'd be here past dinner. Uh, but, but I just don't want us to, like, bury the lead here. That This is, in, in context, John's been doing this. So, and if you haven't been here, let me just recap this for you a little bit. But this was, like, a moment here for Jesus. He got a good question. This is a great question. You, you guys may have this question, too. This is a great question, but there's a moment for Jesus where in response to the question of what we must do for this bread, he could have said anything. He could have cited any of the laws of the Old Testament he wanted. He could have focused on a couple of the big ones, the most important ones. But he chose zero. Zero. Without a qualifier, without an asterisk, or an apology. Uh, as the New Testament says elsewhere in Galatians, uh, what counts now for the Christian is faith expressing itself through love. What counts, actually right before this he says, circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, uh, which is one of, the, one of the laws of the Old Testament. Uh, he said that this is like an, an epoch-shifting, era-shifting statement that the Apostle Paul is making here. Jesus is too insinuating this. It's, the time is coming and is now here. But to say that circumcision and uncircumcision don't count for anything is to say the law doesn't count for anything. Uh, it's, it's to say that now what, what counts, what is to your credit, what matters, is that you believe in Jesus. And that, and that your faith in a God who loved you to, to hell and back is expressed through love for each other. That's what counts. That's what, that's what matters. And that's what needs to be put into practice over and over again rather than moved on from as if it's a doorway of conversion alone rather than the path itself and the, the end journey. And so I, I think like one question I would ask you guys, uh, I know that for me, well, it's asking all of us, um, Again, you may have the same question, but um, when, you're, when you see Jesus respond this way to people, um, and he does this in such wonderful ways in the Gospels, but this is a really big deal. When he, when he flat out responds to the question of what are the works of God, and he says, well, this is it, to believe in me, to believe in the one who, whom he has sent, um, 
the question, I think, is would you answer that question the same way yourself? Like, if you got that question from someone else, what are the works of God? Is your answer on par with, with Jesus? Or are you tempted at, a, at an asterisk? Or at a yeah, but? An, an outflow statement, a qualifier uh, at the end? Because he doesn't. And th- this is one of those moments where I think our theology is formed uh, not just by what's here, but what, by what's not here. And it, this is meant to be not just uh, like a factually true statement, but a liberating statement for you. This is, if you're a Christian, this is true for you. If you're not a Christian yet, uh, this is what the faith is all about. This is why Christians are so simplistic sometimes and so odd. We are citizens of nothing, no legal prescription. Like at the core of who we are is not anything we do, anything, no matter how good or noble. At the core is trust in someone else besides us. It's to put our faith in a God who came low to save people who were low in their sins. All right? Then we move into this middle section, which is, again, it's all one thing here, one uh, flow of thought, but uh, that flows out a little bit from what he was saying. He he says, and again, my paraphrase, but uh, in summary, is the crowd actually uh, plays along a little bit with what Jesus says there and says, okay, we give you that, but what sign do you give us that we might believe in you? Moses gave our ancestors manna, this bread, every day, but what, what do you got? Like, what's your thing? What's your sign? So it's interesting they actually kind of acknowledge what he's saying a little bit, just they're playing along, and they're saying, well, if, you're, if you seem to be talking about yourself and drawing us to, to belief in the Son of Man or this, this divine profession you're beginning to making, well, but what sign do you give us? What proof do you have that you're worthy of, of our trust? Moses gave us this, uh, how about you? And it's interesting, the same crowds that saw the feeding of the 5,000 are asking this. It's like, because they're basically saying, yeah, that was pretty great, but Mona, Moses gave us bread every day. So, you know, it's, it, but it's kind of a mind bender, right? It's like, how is that not enough? But it's actually pretty appropriate that they're going beyond that because Jesus does too, but, but I digress. Uh, but this is a big correction, uh, you know, uh, that Jesus had. I mean, really his response here is, you guys, actually you misunderstand. Uh, Moses did not give you bread, but my, but my father did. And this is a big course shift. It's, it's, not, it's not that unlike what he just got done saying. Like, what must we do was followed by, you got it all wrong. You don't have to do anything. Uh, here they say, Moses is our guy. And Jesus now is saying, the thing that you think he did for you, that was actually God. The true bread comes down from heaven. So, um, now, if you guys are kind of keeping score throughout this book or this series, um, this is yet another time in the Gospel of John that Jesus is contrasted with Moses. This is a big deal for John's theology. Uh, this is at least the fifth time I think it's come up. It's going to come up more. Uh, and remember the point to this. Uh, as we heard back in chapter 1, verse 17, is John says there in like topic sentence-like fashion, in header-like fashion, the law came through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So to say that Moses didn't really give them bread is, is not, um, what the Bible's saying with this stuff is, is not just to say uh, that, again, this is a, an historic sort of touch point or factual touch point that he as a man didn't do this, but it's to say what he represented didn't do it. This is how the Bible talks about when, about when Moses comes up. It's not just Moses, but Moses the man of the law or the man of the first covenant or the man who mediated that relationship between Israel and God that was uh, bent on obedience to his commandments. 
And so when we understand that then, and read that into this, as we should, then really what, what Jesus is getting at here is that Moses, not just Moses didn't truly give you the bread, it's to say that the law didn't give you bread. Uh, it, it didn't nourish them like they think it did. Uh, the, it served a good purpose in pointing beyond itself to a better way. But even in the Old Testament, the law, which demanded that we work in order to maintain God's blessings, is being usurped by a grace coming out of the sky, like bread, a grace of the Father. And they actually quote here, uh, I believe this is from Nehemiah, they, they quote, uh, he gave them bread to eat, and the crowds do, and kind of remind, making this point and saying this was a sign that our ancestors lived under. Um, but if you look at this, it's interesting, it, Jesus is kind of getting out here by saying, it, it says the bread was given. Uh, it, it doesn't say the bread was earned or kept by obedience. Um, and the verb given is ultimately a, a God word. It's not a Moses word. Because given is a grace word, not a law word. And the law, as the Bible says elsewhere, is not of faith. They are oil and water. They're completely different. And so then when it says here that um, the crowds hear this, they, they respond, again, as you, you might think or expect, Sir, give us this bread. We want this kind of bread. Um, after they ask this question, Jesus drops what I think is the nuclear theological bomb of the whole passage for sure, if not the whole book, and one of the biggest ones in the entire New Testament in terms of like Jesus' self-identity, self-identification, and who he is as Messiah. And that is, I am the bread of life. I am the bread. I am the super bread. I am the manna. I am the bread that I've been talking about. I'm actually the bread that I just multiplied to 5,000 people. I'm actually in that bread as well. That bread's about me. It's all about me. And so in six words, I mean, Jesus here instantly separates himself from every other religious figure in history. Uh, Every other religious leader, every other center of religious thoughts. Because no one else says, I am. What other figure says, I am the point. I am the one. I am the source. No one. Jesus is positioning himself against other people here. Everyone has ever lived. He's greater than Muhammad. He's greater than Confucius or Joseph Smith, your favorite president or your favorite internet theologian or your amazing mom. And as we've already said, Moses. He's greater than Moses. Um, Meaning, he doesn't point to the source like a teacher. He is the source like a savior. I mean, it's, it's the equivalent of saying two plus two equals me. I mean, most math teachers don't do that, right? They say two two plus two equals four. Uh, But Jesus is saying, no, I'm the answer to the calculus equation. And, you know, you just kind of put yourself in the spot here and think that is a, not just a trippy, but an inappropriate, even wrong thing to say based off what they thought they knew. But they didn't know anything. And Jesus is saying, now I'm telling you what you didn't know, that I am the reason everything exists, I'm the reason you exist. I'm the reason the Old Testament was written in a certain way. It's my shadow that I'm casting backwards into history. It all exists for my purpose. My miracles are my shadow as well. But you don't need bread. Don't work for it. Work instead or work harder or focus more on the bread that wells up for eternal life. And that bread is me. I am the bread. Even then it's not a lesson. Isn't that cool? Even then it's not like, okay, well, you have a spiritual lesson for us, Jesus. I get it. I'm reading the, I'm reading the, 
writing on the wall. All right, what's the spiritual lesson? Like, even then it's not. I mean, it is, but he's not a lesson. It's not him. Like, he says, no, I, I am it. This is a uh, textbook miracle to lesson setup that we see so often in the Gospels. And I kind of mentioned this, but Jesus feeds the 5,000 with bread. Now he says, I am the bread. Uh, he'll do this a lot with miracles, where he'll do something physical with something like a miracle or talk about it or hold it, like an object lesson almost. But then right after that, he'll say, I am that thing. I am the point. It's about me. It might not be bread, it's probably something else. But it's also a textbook, uh, Old Testament to New Testament setup in saying that Israel received the manna and now Jesus says, I am the true manna from heaven. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Or I think of also other things like, not in this passage, but other places in the gospel accounts where um, the Pharisees uh, say things like to Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting? And Jesus' answer is, because I'm here. Why would you fast at a wedding? Why would you not eat and have the cake at a wedding reception? Like, why are you acting like it's a funeral? That's like his response. I love it. Or like, why are you so cavalier about the Sabbath law, Jesus? His answer is, because I am your rest. Not the law, I am. What is the work of God? I am, he's saying. I work for you. The work is is me to believe in me and to rest in me and to partake of me and to celebrate with me and who I am for you. Something greater than the law is here. This is why, um, you know, Jesus speaks in these terms elsewhere, a different gospel, but Something greater than sacrifice, something greater than the Sabbath. Uh, God says in the Old Testament even that he desires mercy, not the law. He desires mercy, not sacrifice. And so I I think like a a lesson here, um, there's a lot of high theology in this, but a lot of pragmatism too. Um, One outflowing question from this to us is, is Jesus a means to an end for you or is he the true end? As you think about your life, Christian or not, is he a means to something different or more or kind of related but different or is he himself on the cross it? And, and, and Jesus here is trying to help us see this by pointing to himself not as a conduit or a pipe that you look through to see something better or different but he's saying, I am, I am, I am. Jesus Fix all my problems, we might pray. Fix all my problems. Take away my chronic illness. Fix my marriage. It's on the rocks. And Jesus says here, don't labor for that bread. This this isn't like, this isn't Jesus saying, those things don't matter to me. Maybe he will answer a prayer. But those breads perish in light of who he is. And so, for people that have a full stomach, literally from the bread that Jesus just multiplied, and they saw that happen, and for Jesus not to duplicate the miracle here, it's, I'm not going to do that because you don't need it. This is partly why people end up leaving. You know, it's like, oh, I thought you were going to heal me of my sickness. I thought you were going to take care of my chronic headaches. Like, isn't that part of the deal? And Jesus says, uh, no, no, maybe. God is not a killjoy. He answers prayer all the time. 
But those are secondary things, those, those, types of, those types of things. What is he doing here? Why doesn't he give them more bread? Or does he? See, he does. But what's the bread? Jesus himself is the bread. And there's, nothing, there's, no, there's no asterisk to that. There's no secondary, better form of Jesus later or like an ongoing. Jesus is saying, you need to understand everything that came before me is lesser and I am greater. It all served my purpose by becoming subservient to the purpose of me dying on a cross for, for your sins. And so that question, man, it's so important to ask. And don't assume that you don't do this. Uh, I, 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 I know I do, and sh- I shouldn't, but no, I do. Uh, but the question of, of do you want bread from him or do you want him, it needs to be out of the for- in the forefront of our spirituality. Do we want bread from him or do you want him? Uh, is what these crowds are sort of being confronted with uh, here. All right, we'll see more of that uh, coming up. All right, then, then we come to the end, which is really, in- of this passage at least, which is really interesting because there's a problem. Uh, the problem is you still don't believe even though I'm staring at you in the face. Uh, verse 36, I don't think I put it up here uh, explicitly, but um, it's where Jesus says, you see me, and yet you do not believe. So, seeing's not enough. Right? Like, if Jesus was here, physically, and like seeing him, that, that would not be enough. There would, be, there would need to be one more big hurdle that's, that's surmounted. And, and, that, and that is belief. But if we can't see him, you know, I don't know if you guys have this problem like I do of staring right at a grocery item in a store and still not seeing it. You guys ever have that? I'm like the most unobservational person I've, I've ever met. Um, but it's, uh, so then you kick yourself later for seeing it, right? It's kind of one of those things. And, and the problem he gets, gets bigger here in this passage when we remember how this passage started, which was to do the work of God is to believe in the one he has sent. But belief is impossible. No one believes. No one can believe or have faith in God. That's what this is saying. No one can see I mean, Jesus is right there. What's the problem? I mean, it can't be more clear. I'm the bread. You're looking at me. But Jesus says, you still don't believe. So what's the solution? What's needed? What's needed is an act of God. That's what's needed. And let me read verses 37 to the end again. It's so important and it's rich. And it shows us the answer to the problem of the impossibility of belief. It says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Then he kind of qualifies that in 40. He says, For this is the will of my Father, every one who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So it's, it's kind of moved from the broad to the specific. Like he's talking about people. He's talking about raising people from tombs, which he will do later in this story for Lazarus. If you know that story, we'll get to that. Um, but he's talking about you and me. He has us in focus. He has all of humanity in, in, in the crosshairs of his saving grace and love here. That's, that's what he wants. He wants to raise people from the dead. But backing up, so if the question is, 
about the impossibility of belief. In order to come to Jesus, we first have to be given to Jesus by the Father. Do you see what he's saying here? All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Only those who are given to Jesus will come to Jesus. And whoever comes to Jesus then will be his people, and they, they will never be cast out. And there is a ton of grace in this. Um, it, you know, basically saying no one comes to Jesus on their own, especially your own merit. Like no one in history has come to Jesus on their own. No one has found him. No one has come to, that, come to him on their own merit with their calloused hands. No one's done it. But only those who have been given, been, we're passive to this, right? Been given to Jesus by the Father. In other words, the, the ones the Father has acted upon or whose hearts he has softened. To those he works on through his spirit and blows across because uh, we have deadened souls. We need the, the wind of the spirit to wake us up from our stupor. And I understand, like, the, some of you might have, like, a, the philosophical response to that of, or theological of, well, then how do our choices matter and things like that? What about free will? I get that. There's a place for that. But here I think what this is just saying is the response to this is not those types of questions, but ultimately, if this is true, then we open our hands to God and we say, God, save me because I want to be one of the ones that are given to Jesus by the Father. And that prayer is never unanswered. That prayer is never said no to. But this posture of, I have nothing, I can't approach God, no matter how good I, much good I do in my life, if I'm not given to God, if I'm not acted upon or blown across by the wind of the Spirit, I'm toast. Like, that's going to that's gonna position you before God in the right way. It's going to make you humble. It's going to make you more focused on God than yourself. It's going to make you actually pray, actually pray, and actually be thankful right? If you believe, if you, if we believe this. Uh, if we don't, if we insert ourselves into this more, we'll become less of all those things. It's kind of the idea. So in one sense, like it makes you, a pre, it's, a, it's an offensive message for especially people who think they're good and who are maybe type-driven, A people, whatever. All of us is offensive. But I just mean, those are people who think they're good. This is very offensive because basically saying none of that matters. Are you given by the Father to Jesus or not? That, that's the question, right? Because it's, it's very explicit or exclusive. All that the Father gives me will come to me, but that's it. Those who are not given will not, will not come. In other words, we need God. We need him. We're needy before him. We have nothing to give him. And these are gospel ideas, Right? The how, though, to this question, to flush it out more, comes through verses 38 and 39. Basically, he says, um, this is how God will act upon sinners, by Jesus coming down like bread and to do the will of God, to harvest souls, to accomplish the mission for which he was sent. Uh, but then he goes on and says, uh, this is also the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes should live forever. But uh, one question is a very important to ask here, and this is actually... Um, if you like to outline passages and things like that or write in your Bibles ever, this is actually a spot to put something. Um, but this is kind of where, a, I think, a crux happens or a moment where Jesus shifts a little bit from generic to specific and, um, and where you start to see his suffering come in. Um, because when you talk about what or how maybe we look at the sun, um, that's not a generic idea. I think it actually looks back to a lot of things, but looks back in John to John 3, 
verses 14 to 15, where uh, Moses actually is brought up again, interestingly enough, but uh, where Jesus there says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the, de- in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up on a cross that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. This is from Numbers 21. If you haven't read this story, Israel's in the desert. They sin. There's this judgment. There's snakes biting them. People are dying widespread. They cry out to God for help, and God says, this is the solution. Uh, put a bronze snake on the end of a bronze pole and hold it up. And everyone who passively looks at the snake will be saved. That The venom will be sucked out of their arm and they'll live. Only those who look at the snake on the pole, who look up and they, and they see it. And what Jesus is saying then in the New Testament is saying, that story was about me. I'm the snake on the pole. I'm the unclean animal who was crucified. Though I did nothing wrong, I became unclean and sinful. I became like a devil. I be- what snakes are devil-like animals in the Bible. Many, most of you probably know that. Uh, it, it's interesting that Jesus likens himself of all animals to that animal. Couldn't it have been a lamb? Like, Jesus, did you screw up? Did you not read Genesis 3? Of course he did. He wrote it. So it's like Jesus knows what he's doing. He is likening himself to wickedness. He's saying, on the cross, I became evil like you. So I, die, so I could die for you and in your place. I am a sub, I'm a bullet taker. I'm a substitute. So looking then in the Bible, this is why we're going here for just a minute, is looking and beholding is not a generic idea. Like when the Bible says, look at Jesus, that's super abstract, right? And I think the Bible helps us get more concrete with that. It, it answers how, where, when, what's he doing? What are we actually looking at? What part of Jesus are we looking at? And this is the answer. I mean, this even looks like a cross for a reason. Beholding and looking in the Bible and in your life and mine isn't generic. Uh, Jesus' obedience, this is a big deal too, um, isn't generic, but it's specific. Uh, Philippians 2 says he became obedient. This is when he says here, I'm doing the will of my Father. Well, what's the will? We have to answer that question too, right? That's not generic either. That's very specific. He came to die. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. All right? And, and so this is, to, to circle back then to our question and the problem of we're seeing but not perceiving we're looking right at the grocery item and not even seeing it, we're, and we're leaving. We're, we're missing it completely. How is he going to make blind people see? That's the question. Dead people live. Hard-hearted people, soft-hearted. How is he actually going to save and make people want that bread and reach out for it and, and grab hold of it? This is the answer. This is what's needed to wake us up from our rebellious stupor. Uh, to use the crowd's words, from elsewhere in John 6, this is the work Jesus performs. Did you guys notice that in the passage? There is this question of what work are, do we have to do to be doing the work of God? Then they pivot to, Jesus, what work do you do? That's a great um, spiritual journey encapsulation in a couple of uh, verses there in the Bible. Where we, that's, we, as we mature, we move from that. We ask less the question, what, what are we supposed to do? As Christians, we lay that down and just move more to the question, what, what has Jesus done? But Jesus here, I mean, this is a, a fissure-making, earthquake-inducing, corpse-awakening act of God, period. This is where he washes us, forgives us, calls us from our tombs. 
And so when they ask, what sign do you give us that we, we might see you? This is it. Uh, this is where it's headed. The feeding of the 5,000 wasn't enough. His monologue in John 6 wasn't enough. Seeing isn't generic. It's headed somewhere. And so Jesus says, the sign is the bread of my body. The way that, that I give you that bread is by being broken on, on the cross. If you guys remember, uh, after Jesus rose from the dead in Luke 24, it says he was made known to the disciples in what? In the breaking of bread. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's a really cool moment. It says they couldn't understand or see him or knew, knew who they were talking to, the risen Christ. Then he broke bread and their eyes were opened. Um, very cool, like, Eastery encap- encapsulation of this idea that when you break bread, you're seeing Christ in that moment. We have communion. You break that cracker. That, 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 that's, that's Christ is there, uh, spiritually speaking, in that moment. Not just in the bread, but the, the brokenness, the suffering bread, the harmed bread uh, for us. So let me uh, just close with this. I think that um, this is not the end of the... the um, John 6, of course, but it ends this section really well where Jesus, again, a lot of high theology, but then he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Then everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And this is how God speaks to us. He, spoke, I, he speaks in every word that's read of his word, but this is really the invitation of God to you and me, is this is true for you. Whoever means you. It's the most inclusive word he could have chosen. In the English, well, let's speak English, but in our language. The most inclusive word we can, we can have. Whoever. Which is really good news for sinners. Also very offensive because that means that the person who's hurt you the most in your life is also welcome at the table. Uh, the worst person in the world, as you see it, is invited by Jesus. Um, it's because it's not bent on their moral acuity, right? Um, it's Whoever. The worst of people and the best of people are equally invited. Um, and so everyone who looks on the sun, on the cross, everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. And so uh, this is what the word says, you guys. Do you believe this? Do you believe it afresh today? Uh, is Christ your end, your all in all? Is he your bread? Or is he a conduit or a channel or a pipe? Uh, telescope, an arrow, a pointer, a rabbi, just a teacher. I mean, these are, these are the questions of life, the questions of Scripture, that as the crowds are being confronted, splashed in the face with this new teaching, so maybe so are some of you, or some of you are fresh. But, but what, you, what you say to the question of who is Jesus to you means everything, right? About your theology and mine, our church, what we stand on, what we don't stand on. The work of God is only one thing. God is not hiring. Like we see those signs everywhere right now, right? Well, God is not hiring. That's good news. He's not looking to hire you. God never hires people. He gives. He doesn't barter with you. He gives. He doesn't respond to something you do as if you can turn his head and earn flattery. He gives. Because just like the manna was given, How much more is the manna from heaven given and not worked for or kept by obedience? See, you are kept by God. Jude something says, it's in there somewhere. Uh, You're kept. He keeps you. 
right? You don't keep yourself in by being obedient. Uh, you are kept by, by the blood. And that's what moves your heart. That's what, that's what just opens you up and changes you and transforms you as the Spirit of God through that that actually transforms the heart of a sinner, you know, into someone who's just so not about himself or herself that they're actually freed up to love people. And that's really what this whole thing's about. Let me pray. Father, thank you uh, so much for this passage today. I, I pray for myself, uh, for everyone here and all those who call Hiawatha home who are not here today. Pray for them as well. But um, thank you for calling out to us and being uh, beautifully, maybe offensively clear, but beautifully clear um, about the true nature of spirituality. Um, in a lot of ways, sanctification comes into this uh, factor as well. But it means to live daily as a Christian. Um, there's a lot here to mull over, so I, I pray for myself, this, uh, all of us here, to think uh, deeply, to drink in deeply this teaching this week and to find nourishment uh, in knowing you are not hiring and you never, ever will. Thank God. You are a father, Jesus says here. You are a father, and you give good gifts to your children, uh, the greatest of which is bread that looked like and that was the body of the Son of God himself, who was crucified for sinners. Help us to eat, drink, nourish ourselves, and define ourselves as citizens of that one idea. No legal prescription, not birth, uh, but simply belief. In Christ we pray, amen.